No, I only think you're a semi-lunatic. Semi-lunatic. Not a full lunatic. That's fine. Welcome to the Carl Landry Record Club, a music podcast hosted by two semi-lunatics, <laughs> brought to you by the rights to Ricky Sanchez. I'm Spike Eskin, along with lunatic number two, or lunatic number one, depending if you're going in alphabetical order or introduction <laughs> order. That's Mootloo. Yeah, moot lunatic. I'm a moot lunatic. Moot lunatic. Oh my God, that's what your fans should be. Have you ever yeah. thought about that? No, I, you know, my buddy uh, Dante Bucci, did you ever see him play? He sadly, he passed away a number of years ago. No. Uh, but he was a big part of the music scene. Uh, he played in my band and he coined that phrase because we, we worked together for years. And uh, one day, <laughs> this is early on, one day he was like, you know, your fans should be called moot lunatics. Oh, and I, I don't know, I, I didn't capitalize on that. But I'll, I'll use this moment, though, to, to give a plug for Dante, mm-hmm. for people listening. Check him out online on YouTube. He, he was a master of this uh, drum called the hung drum. Have you seen this drum? It's like a melodic drum. It looks like a UFO. No. Huh. And uh, check him out on, on YouTube. I mean, his videos have millions of views. Uh, huh. Dante Bucci, B-U-C-C-I. And uh, no, sadly, he passed away like about six, seven years ago. Uh, but great guy, great friend. And it's worth checking out because he has some videos of him, him playing solo, him playing with other musicians. I guess the closest thing I can compare that instrument to is maybe like a vibraphone or uh, you know that kind of sound. Like it's percussive, but it's melodic. Yeah. There's notes huh. within the percussion. So I'd urge everybody, check him out. Dante Bucci. Yeah, check it out. And that moot lunatics. Yeah, I and he coined is, the phrase moot lunatic. Guys, yeah, I think was, we, we need to bring that back. You made a, is that a t shirt? Is that a yeah, t shirt? <laughs> yeah, moot lun, a moot lunatic. It should say moot lunatics with somebody wrapped in saran wrap right underneath <laughs> it. That's, that's uh, that, it. that is. That's branding right there, baby. Yeah, that's, that's Brett. <laughs> see, that's, what, that's my specialty. I'm the uh, saran wrap guy. The uh, intro music is from Marion Hill. It is called I Should Let You Know. You can't get it anywhere, only right here. We are a music appreciation podcast. Generally talk about two albums every week. The goal is to open you up to an album maybe you never knew about or music you never knew about. Or and to, It's not like we're just doing this for you. We're doing it for each other. So I suggest Mutlu, uh, albums for Mutlu. He does for me, and we take listener albums. If you want to suggest one, do it in the Apple Podcast Reviews. Give us five stars and leave us, a rev- leave us the uh, suggestion right in the review there. Today's podcast is about two albums. My choice is Green Day's Dookie, released in 1994. And the listener choice is Don Brocco's Amazing Things, which came out this year. The review comes from Joey Dell 11. Good pod, he says. If you're into trying new music that you may have, that you may not have been exposed to, this is a good listen. Artists across very many different genres request Don Brocco Amazing Things if you're into a rock band that spans multiple genres. Also, the, the last intro thing here, we are about to do our year-end episode. We want your year-end uh, uh, playlist, like your, your best five songs from 2021, or the song can represent an album or wherever you want to do. Just go send us an email, Club at gmail.com. Want to hear your five best things. Already seen some good playlists and a bunch of stuff, by the way, that I didn't know that we haven't talked about at all this year. So Club uh, at gmail.com. I believe I have my final list do you have yeah. you have you're close you're closing in right i'm closing in i'm more or less there uh i did i did a weird number last year like eight or seven some this year i just did a, a 10 ah you there know, you 10, go 10 a top 10 i like the i like i like just the concise nature of 10 you know 
Well, for our final, for our year-end episode, I'll have five, but I looked, when I was looking, I, I think I have 14 or 15. What I do is there's a, a Wikipedia page that just says albums released this year. So I just uh, go through and just look for things that I've, because that, it's hard, I don't keep track of everything that I've listened to. And there was actually more in 2021 than I thought there was that I really liked. And I just, I figured for that playlist, I'll just put everything that I really liked. And then for our top five, I'll think about things that I'll want to talk about or that maybe we're going to have AU and Jason on, maybe that I'm, I'm almost certain that they won't have on there and that you won't have on there. So there's a little bit of differing things in there. And of course, Limp Bizkit um, on, on there. Yeah. <laughs> I'm right there with you. Another thing I'm doing, which is taking a little time, is I'm trying to get a, a running order for these 10 songs. Oh, you know, so you're making it like an album. I'm trying to like listening to the ends of songs. Like, how, how does this one segue into this uh, one? And how's the, what's you're the doing it like a tape? That's awesome. I'm trying to do a tape. Yeah, I, we'll see how well I do. But you know, uh, but also trying to pick a few things oh. that I was in that mindset too that you guys probably won't pick. Uh, and there's probably gonna be others that you probably will pick. I mean, we might have overlap on certain tunes. Now I got to go back and think about running order. I got to. It's gotta worth a that. little time. It's yeah, worth yeah, a little yeah. time because it's it fun is, when you do that and then the thing comes together. I'm trying to think of it as like, well, someone, if someone wants to say dialed into this, mm-hmm. you know, for 30, 40 minutes, whatever, like I want to try to keep them, keep them locked into the, to the That's listen. That's a good you know? point. I'll do yeah. that as well. It, it deserves that much care. It definitely deserves that much Absolutely. care. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. Well, and that's why... That's why mixtapes are so good because, I mean, we've talked about this before. You had to limit yourself. You had to time it out. You know, all those different things I think were important on tapes, which is I, I should live by my my own, you know, set of beliefs and morals, and I should make sure that I'm do you, doing it the correct way. Do you think with Spotify playlists that's not as much of a concern? I guess it isn't when I look at a lot of the Spotify playlists. It's just here's a set of songs under this theme, but – it's not always set up around what's the arc of this thing. What's the no. does one song go into the other in a natural way? You know, and and truthfully, when I look at it, I get a little bit of. I think we all do get a little bit of decision fatigue, and you know, like there's the paradox of choice. Basically, that you have too many choices, it's harder to make a choice, and you're less likely to make a choice if there's too much. And when I see playlists that have too many songs on them, I actually don't want to look at it at all. Like yeah. it's like when I get to a restaurant, I want the menu to be like small. Yeah. Just tell me what the seven best things you have are and just put that on the menu and I'll choose from that. Because sometimes when the menu's too big, I'll just tell the waiter or the waitress, just pick something. I just I don't want to pick anything. So And a lot of the best restaurants do what you're saying. They'll be like sure. you know, maybe a dozen items on there, fifteen tops split mm-hmm. up across, you know, different courses. That's quality over quantity. That's that that's why I thought about going past ten. For the playlist, and I was like, "No, ten feels good. That feels. Mm. I, I, I maybe have a chance of keeping people engaged, top to bottom. You know. Yeah, maybe I'll do that. Well, why don't we get right into the albums because we have because we spent <laughs> twenty minutes talking about politics before the podcast. So, so yeah, yeah. So a, we'll, we'll get right in into the the albums. It was a, a spirited discussion, a positive. Uh, yes, discussion. yes. Uh, it it was almost like a, a different podcast. Yes. Uh, but it made me realize we could probably do that kind of podcast if we wanted to. Yep. Um, yep. But you know what? Actually, uh, like we were saying, I think our podcast is good. We can get into some of those conversations through the prism of music. It's it's a unique angle to get in because a lot of other people are 
discussing things the way we just did. Yes. So and our I, approach is unique, I think, you know? It, yeah. If we're going to make anybody mad, it'll be with music takes. I'm fine with <laughs> right. doing that. I don't, yeah. I don't want to make somebody not listen to the pod because of my vaccine mandate uh, <laughs> opinions. <laughs> it's, just, it's not a good... If you don't like my opinion on Bruce Springsteen and you're out, I get it. That's cool. I'm, You'll I'm take fine the shots that. for that. You'll sure. take the shots for that. For sure. <laughs> so why don't we start off with my album and then we'll do Don Bracco. We'll Sounds just get good. right into it. So my album is Green Day's Dookie. 17 and drug out on confusion I had forgotten when I was looking at what album to pick that for a solid five or six years, maybe seven years, Green Day was my favorite band in the world. Like I loved Green Day. And when I was in college, I remember sort of like driving a couple hours to see them. I remember seeing them at Lollapalooza in 94 uh, in when I was at USC and driving out to see them a couple places there. And then when I went to Syracuse, driving to Rochester and driving to Binghamton and or did they play Binghamton and then seeing them in Syracuse. And I loved, loved, loved uh, this band. So, and it, it started with this. It actually started with MTV and seeing Longview on MTV. So Green Day originally started playing together in 87, which is wild. Billy Joe was 15 years old. The lineup that we ended up knowing didn't come together until 90. So their first album, which was on Lookout Records, which is a Bay Area sort of punk indie album, 39 Smooth came out in uh, in like, I think 89. And then 90, they replaced the drummer with Trey Cool. So the, the, the lineup we know, Billy Joe Armstrong on guitar and vocals, Mike Dirt on bass, Trey Cool on drums. And that was the lineup that was on Kerplunk, which really sort of launched them into big, big in the big indie sort of scene. And they they played a club in in the Bay Area called 924 Gilman Street. And that is a famous punk club in that area. And they got so big with Kerplunk in this small world, this this indie punk world, that there was a bidding war from major labels to go sign them. And the interesting thing about the bidding war for Green Day is that at the time, you know, when you're thinking about 92-ish, this was not the kind of music that was bidding war worthy. Like they didn't sound anything like grunge, which was what was going on there. And even if you take the next step, if you start thinking about 93, the post-grunge stuff was still grungy. You know, when you talk about like Bush or... STP or or whatever band you're you're thinking about, it wasn't like this, right? It wasn't like this Ramones-esque punk. So they get signed to Reprise. And as soon as they signed with the Reprise, they were banned from 924 Gilman Street for <laughs> selling out with a major label. I have some thoughts on that that uh but we'll get into that. Of, okay. of, of how there's something sort of unjust about that because it's one thing if someone changes what they do musically but if you mm-hmm. if there's the backlash is just sheerly because of popularity that's always a strange thing to me and yeah. i don't think it exists like that anymore but i know probably at that time it did yeah it was a different thing. world 
Well, now it's so much different because you have to make money by getting your music into commercials. Like that's part of the music right. ecosystem. I think I told the story once. I, was, I, I had booked, when I worked in Chicago in 06, 07, I, we booked, we did like a, a summer show and we did a Christmas show. And I had booked Rise Against to play one of our Christmas shows. And in their contract, I remember, hey, Missy, if you're listening to this, their manager, we had a thing in their contract where they had to do an appearance for us. And we, the, the appearance that we had booked for Rise Against was at a, a Verizon store. And the manager was furious and said they wouldn't do it. And like, and this is them selling out. Remember, this is 07. And, you know, like, this is not the kind of appearance that we we're talking about. And this is a cell phone store. Why would a, a music artist be at a cell phone store? And it, just to think about how much has changed yeah. in that, like the idea of a, an artist being at a cell phone store, which holds all of people's music right. is so natural. <laughs> That's at this intuitive point. now. Yeah. That's like <laughs> So, but that, uh, it just shows how much has changed even in that 15 years. And you can think about, you know, the 90s, it was way different then. So, uh, so this is, so they, they release Dookie, which is their first major label release in 94. And this is another story. We've talked about this a few times because I think Appetite was one of these things, Appetite for Destruction. The album comes out and doesn't really do anything for the first six or eight months. So the album comes out and in the first week does 9,000 copies. We're talking about an era where albums could do a million copies or hundreds of thousands of copies in the first week. Especially on a major, you on a major, more. Yeah. Right. So this comes out in February of 94 and does 9,000 copies. And it isn't until MTV gets a hold of Longview in the summer. really starts, you know, bustling and becoming something. And that was how I discovered Green Day was MTV. It's how I discovered a lot of bands back then was MTV. And it didn't end up being the biggest hit on the album, which ended up being Basket Case, an album with a, a ton of hits. But Longview, which if you see them, if you see Green Day play now and they play Longview, so many of the the fans don't even know the, the song hmm. because they've, there's, you know, there's 30, they, they've just churned through audiences, it's different audiences, like, because American Idiot ended up being a new, you know, wave of fans, and uh, and this was so long ago that that is not even close to their biggest hit, you know, over the last 35 years or whatever of their existence, so. Well, that's interesting, though, because, so you're saying that early fans from these first few records are not with them, because a lot of times that is the case, those fans stick around. No, uh, I think they are, I just don't. You know, they're in their mid forties. How many concerts do they even? They're not go going to, to shows like that anymore, right? right? And and right. And we were talking about in the last pod. They're touring with Fall Out Boy and Weezer, and like, I don't know. Like, if you're in your mid forties, are you going to a concert with at a, a stadium concert with fucking yeah. Fall Out Boy and Green Day? It's like, meh, probably not. Maybe some people, but I think they're. I think they've had so many different eras that I think their their fans are just spread out over a bunch of time and probably don't all have the same favorite Green Day, you know? Uh, so they have 30 years. 
they've released 13 albums. They've sold 85 million records. And I've, I've mentioned before that I think if you're putting together a list of greatest American rock bands, that I think Green Day has to be on the list somewhere, that their success and their, uh, you know, their changes and all of these things and, and their continued success here in, in 2021 certainly puts them on a list of, uh, and their individuality, right? Like I don't, I don't think at the, and, and they ended up inspiring. We, we've talked a lot about hardcore music inspiring pop punk, like this did. Like this was seminal. I think when you listen to just how green, just how Billy Joe sings on this album, and you think about how pop punk singers sing, I think it comes from this. Like this is sort of the original version of that. Isn't this of sort of the archetype in a way, or uh, the? I, well, but it was mixed between this and hardcore. Like I think if you if you ask pop punk um, bands that evolved in the 2000s, I think. Yes, Green Day would be there, but I think there's an entire other group of music, like when we're talking about Fall Out Boy, like those heavy riffs don't come from Green Day, you know, mm -hmm. and the screaming vocals don't come from Green Day. They come from hardcore music, not punk music, you know? So I think, I think there was a lot of that. Listening back to this album, which I haven't listened to in so many years, like there's so many songs in this album that are, end up on the radio, right? When I come around on the radio, you still hear Longview, you still hear Basket Case, uh, you still occasionally hear She... You know, there, there are plenty of songs, Welcome to Paradise, you hear on the radio, but I hadn't listened to it from beginning to end. And I just, it put me in a place in time. And I remembered how great the album was. And if there's one thing that I can point about this album is the lyrics are so 18 to 19 year old about <laughs> the anxiety of growing up and girls and masturbating and all of these things. <laughs> but I, I think they're still written in a really smart way. Like I think his turns of phrase, Billy Joe Armstrong is, is so good. And, and he writes it, it, sometimes when you write, when you can tell what the song is about very obviously, sometimes the, the lyrics are, are too obvious, right? But I think he writes them, it's so honest, it feels like. And with songs like, um, you know, Welcome to Paradise, or it, it starts off with Burnout. The first song of the album is Burnout. And, um, like, I declare I don't care no more. I'm growing up and out and growing bored is like, or uh, I step in line, I'm not growing up, I'm just burning out, and I step in line to walk amongst the dead. The fear that you're not a kid anymore, and now you're just gonna have this normal, everyday life. Or, or the songs on the album that are about girls, you know, like She, or Pulling Teeth. are all so crushingly honest. Um, Welcome to Paradise. I remember listening to Welcome to Paradise when I lived in, when I went to college. So 
in uh, in Los Angeles in '94, and sort of like a letter to your parents about living in this city, you know, like this sort of crime-ridden city. I was living in South Central LA at the time, and it made me. I, I just I felt such a I guess kinship with the lyrics, and I don't think that there was ever an album that came out at a time in my life that I identified more with than Dookie. And this, and not to mention that the songs are impeccably written and there's not a miss on the album. There's not even one miss, I don't think, on the there's album. There's no filler, I would say, on this. And no. it zips by. It's like 15 songs, but it's not even 40 minutes. Nope. So, um, it's all killer, no filler. And even the, the, at the end... Which is the only song that Billy Joe doesn't sing all by myself, which is by Trey Cool. <laughs> it's like cool. purposely ridiculous. Per, who, who is singing that song? Is it's it Trey Cool. I was alone. I was all by myself. No one was looking. I was thinking of you. It's Trey It's cool. like purposely bad. I mean, you can you yeah. get the joke. It's yeah. tongue in cheek. So you, yeah. you they're even laughing it's like, during it. Yeah, um, it's, it's kind of ridiculous. But so because you see the intention behind it, you're like, okay, they're just they wanted to throw this on. It's hard for me to even identify songs. I think I could do a I could talk for 15 minutes about every song on this album. So we've talked about your sort of introduction to this song on this <laughs> album with your French exchange student history. Oh, oui, oui, a green day to key, album classic and magnifique. You know, I was waiting for that moment. Yeah. <laughs> but so, yeah, <laughs> go ahead. Uh, what is your sort of like, I, I know what my history is with this album. I don't know what yours is. I don't know how much of this album was new to you. I would imagine almost none of it, but I have no idea. Yeah, I, I like this record a lot. And I, <laughs> it comes back to the Silver Chair conversation because I sort of got tuned into this at the same time as Silver Chair. So it was, it was later because that's, that would have been a few years after this came out. So I didn't really know it at the time it came out exactly. But I was definitely a fan. I mean, I I think the song for me that probably stood out the most was Basket Case. And that's probably the biggest hit here, right? Yeah, by uh, far. Yep. But it's always been a standout because it's that rare song that chronicles sort of mental distress, but sort of expresses it in a way that's, it's sort of almost like energizing and upbeat. You know, it's not, it's it's reflective and it talks about maybe anxiety and depression, but it's not self-pitying. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's doesn't take itself too seriously. That's That's an ability that he has. That like like if you take some lyrics from that song, sometimes I give myself the creep. Sometimes my mind plays tricks on me. It all keeps adding up. I think I'm cracking up. Am I just paranoid or am I just stoned? If you heard those words in a different context with a different songwriter, they could seem heavy. But somehow he can talk about those things and give it to you in a way that doesn't feel heavy handed, doesn't feel self-pitying or mm-hmm. too overly... I don't know, ominous or introspective or something. Somehow somehow he makes those topics more digestible or relatable. He said, I had a, there was an interview with him about the album in Rolling Stone years, years later. And he said, Basket Case became this loser national anthem. <laughs> but to say that it's about panic attacks is limiting. 
It's about going through total confusion. I think of a song like American Idiot as feeling, okay, there's a lot of chaos in the world, people getting murdered. There's no way to make sense of a world like that. You feel like you're a victim of it, and Basket Case is the same way. Like, I do think that song and the whole album is sort of like making sense of the world in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. you know, uh, of like a changing world at a changing like, you know, he, he wrote this album when he was 18, 19 years old, when is a huge change. And I even think that the time that he was writing it, there was, you know, the, the time in the early 90s, like there was a, there was change going on, you know, I, th- I think there was a, an evolution. And I just, I think sort of being intimidated by all of it and scared of all of it and, you know, uh, and it causing that anxiety was, is a, is a, a, a thing to feel when you're that age, you know? Yeah. And you, you were talking about how, yeah, there's a lot of teenage angst themes in this, but mm-hmm. I think he transcends it in the way that, uh, that he communicates the lyrics, like having a blast, that song. Yeah. So a few, that's a great tune. Like just looking yeah. at a few of these lines, I'm losing all my happiness, the happiness you pinned on me. My loneliness still comforts me. My anger dwells inside of me. I'm taking it all out on you and all the shit you put me through. That's poignant. You know, even though when you hear mm-hmm. it, there's, <laughs> it's sort of this, well, I guess it wasn't called pop punk, but it's it, it kind of almost musically feels like a predecessor to that kind of thing. Like n- now that we've heard so many of those bands and that sound, it maybe seems more recognizable. But lyrically, you know, it's sort of depicting something that I think is interesting, this like need to contrive happiness. That's what mm-hmm. I feel like he's talking about there. Yep. You know, sometimes feeling like you have to contrive happiness either within yourself or in a relationship is the hardest thing to do because it's a hard thing to go through the motions of that. Sometimes it's easier to just feel alienated or upset and just own up to that, the honesty of that feeling. Uh, so, I mean, that's that's a that's beyond just your teenage angst sort of songwriting. There's something deeper in the lyrics. That's what I think sets these songs aside. That's what... You know, he's proven himself to be a craftsman of the highest order. And you've talked about all the different things he's done. He's a conceptualist. But even before, the, you know, those later records, you could see what a great songwriter he was here. And he's able to be revelatory and talk about things that are that are so substantive and maybe even dark and difficult to process. But he, he can put them through a filter that is relatable somehow. Some of that is also what's happening musically. You know, there's just this great, like, visceral energy in the way they play as a band. But it's not an easy thing to talk about some of these things he talks about, basically like alienation, like you're talking about that one song. Yeah. And he makes it fun. Like, he, he almost, he, he's, like, almost self-deprecating in a way. And I think there's something endearing about just the, his his perspective as a songwriter. Yeah, I think there's, there's a song called F.O.D., which uh, stands for Fuck Off and Die, which is... <laughs> But it's a, it's a funny song because I think on one level, like the second half of it where is where it's heavy and fast, he's really just talking to somebody that he doesn't like. Like the lyrics are, uh, to say you're just a fuck, I can't explain it because I think you suck. <laughs> I'm taking pride in telling you to fuck off and die is, is funny. But the first half of the song, which is acoustic, like 
Let's nuke the bridge we torched 2,000 times before. This time we'll blast it all to hell. I've had this burning in my gut now for so long. My belly's aching now to say. Like that's a, for those, those that lyrical, you that's know. great. That yeah. compared to F, the FOD part in later in the song is amazing that it comes across in the same song. It doesn't even feel like it's written by the same person. That's great lyric, right? That's what we always talk about, showing, not telling. He gives you like a visual. Mm-hmm sort of metaphor for what he's trying to say. Yeah, and again, so it's like, it's on the surface, it seems like one thing, when you actually absorb what he's saying and the way he's saying it, there's it, there's much more to it. I forget which band we were talking about, but it makes me think of the John Hughes thing, where John Hughes would do these movies that were like teen movies, like Breakfast yeah. Club, and uh, but they transcended that because they weren't just your average teen high school movies. The things he talked about, the themes that were there, the conversations the characters had, were, had a much broader appeal than that. That's what's great about Green Day. See, Green Day, to me, you're talking about you have to put them on the list of great American bands. They're like more in the, for lack of a better word, classic rock pantheon. They're a band mm-hmm. that's transcended any one specific genre. Oh, for sure, yeah. He, you know, they're just, he, be, and I, it comes back to the songs for me. He has an incredible catalog of songs that he's written. Well, just the, when you go through the, if you go Kerplunk to Dookie to Insomniac to Nimrod, and then I think there's something between that and American Idiot. Like those are that's a like that's enough for a masterful career right oh, yeah. there. Forgetting about the fact that there's been 15 years after or 20 years after American Idiot. Like that that 10 year run of albums is, or you know maybe 12 year run of albums is pretty hard to compete with. You know. You know this is a weird thought I just had. But did you ever see the movie This Is 40, Judd Apatow movie? Uh, did I see This Is 40? Oh, He's in it. He has a cameo in it. In it. Well, oh, is he? I don't want to give too much of the movie away. I don't give me spoilers, but at one point, the character, Paul Rudd's character, manages Graham Parker, you know, who's a great songwriter. I didn't songwriter. see This Is 40. Never saw it. You no, know, Graham Parker kind of came up in that era. He was always associated with, like, Elvis Costello and Joe Jackson, that sort of uh-huh. late 70s, early 80s post-punk thing. It's interesting that uh, there's a scene where Billy Joe Armstrong shows up, and okay. he's at Graham Parker's show. And I don't know why that made me think, oh, I see a connection there. This is like, when you think about, say, Elvis Costello or Graham Parker, they had some of the punk rock energy, but they're just great songwriters. They were like craftsmen. And I think it's interesting to me that it's probably based on the reality that Billy Joe Armstrong would be a fan of Graham Parker. It's almost like his songwriting, I see a thread back to that era. Yeah. You, you know, where... Uh, there was a certain attitude and energy of punk or post-punk, but these guys were just really song craftsmen, and they are still. And, uh, you know, so I, I found it interesting that even though he's kind of identified with a certain time, I don't feel like he as a songwriter is necessarily tethered to that time, of the late 80s, early 90s kind of punk thing, you know? I don't I don't think so either. And the the, the albums that he's written, like, excuse me, I remember listening to Insomniac, getting it at a midnight release, and Insomniac was so much heavier than Dookie was. Just in terms of like how hard it grinded you know like that was a heavy record and then they came back with um wait what did i say so there's nimrod and then there's the uh acoustic warning 
Like, warning. acoustic record and it's got some swing in it and all that kind of stuff and then even their most recent record which butch walker produced the the album that came out last oh, really? year oh, yeah i'm not familiar with that one oh. so it's called uh, father of all motherfucker You, you listen to it, it doesn't even sound like Green Day. It doesn't sound like Billy Joe Armstrong. Like the, It's a completely different album. And it's, I don't love it. It's good. It's an interesting listen. But you should listen to it. it. It doesn't even sound like them. They've gone through a lot of different a, a lot of different faces. And then American Idiot, he wrote a real – there are concept records that come out. We talk about things that are loosely concept records that aren't really concept records that are, I guess – generally about a theme, but not really telling a story from beginning to end. But American Idiot does, like Tommy does, you know, in a yeah. very, very clear way about a person, an entire story that is social commentary that is still somehow a masterfully written song with catchy, a masterfully written album with catchy songs and all that kind of stuff. He's like, a, he's an all-time songwriter. Yeah, and you, I like that comparison with that record to Tommy because... It's can you know from a conceptual standpoint, it's all the way there. There's no mistaking that this is a concept. I mean, some artists will put out records and people will think it's a concept record. You know, this thing that happens and the artists say, "Well, no, nah, it wasn't really a concept record. It sort of is." I I've seen this thing where sometimes music journalists want to subscribe, you know, that sort of take on an album. But American Idiot, Tommy records like that, they are true pieces. Like, and you have to absorb them as a whole to get what they're really all about. Yeah, uh, most of the ones that we talk about aren't. They sort of are, but they aren't. I, actually, Titus Andronicus, uh, is, there's enough in there to tie it together, but it's not really about the Civil War. Like, that, that's not no. real. He's using it as a, as a way to frame it, but there's not a ton of records. I think you could say... Well, did you do you know Operation Mindcrime by Queensrÿche? Are you aware of that record? We I'm aware. Have I have. I'm. I know a little bit of Queensrÿche because I remember my cousin in Turkey loved Queensrÿche and he <laughs> listened to it. <laughs> we should we should do Operation Mindcrime because they go so far as to do story interludes in between songs that right. continue to tell the story and that are. But most of the ones that we talk about are not truly about the the topic that they say it's about, not from beginning to end. Maybe it's a theme, but it's not a story. An American idiot is a story. That's not easy to do, you know? Yeah, that's a that's a different mindset you have to get in. You know, so the other ones, the other records, it just gives a sort of an opportunity to focus in the songwriting, but it's a whole nother thing to, like you said, weave a story and yeah. to know that every song in this thing has to follow this arc and connect to the other songs that's you're right that's like one of the hardest things to do and only there's only but so many songwriters you know billy joe and pete townsend among them that, that can do that and the last thing i'd say is the riff from i've heard when i come around too many times but i haven't <laughs> heard it i haven't i haven't heard it in a while because i don't listen to a ton of music radio anymore and that riff is just 
awesome. It like is. He's, he, he'll never be looked at as an all-time great guitar player or anything, but as a riff writer, he's got a bunch in his career that are, I think, all-time riffs. And when I come around, it's just a great, great riff. It's so immediately recognizable. Like It sparks some feeling of nostalgia for that time. I don't know. I mean, yeah, you hear that... I feel like that's maybe the song that also created backlash on them. Is that fair to say? Uh, you know, because I know I that around. scene. Yeah, in a way, like because I know that scene in Berkeley kind of turned their back on them uh, when they once they hit the big time and had commercial success. I feel like that's a song that example of a song that's a great tune that becomes overexposed and it almost works against the perception of the tune. Yes, one hundred percent. There's a, plenty of those songs just got too popular. Yeah, but then you hear it, and it's like, man, this is this is really good. Like, just the ding, 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 yeah, ding, yeah. ding. I mean, you, it just puts you in a place, you know? It's like Sweet Home Alabama, yeah. like punk Sweet Home <laughs> Alabama. That really. It really is. It is. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I had missed Green Day, and it was good to, um, to get back into it. I was supposed to see them for three straight summers and now haven't. At the last Butch Walker charity event I was at in, to, uh, in Topanga Canyon, I, there was an auction and I won a bass in the auction that Mike Durnt used in the recording of Father of All Motherfuckers. And part of winning that in the auction was supposed to see them on this tour and meet them and get them to sign it before. But of course it gets postponed one summer. I think the next summer, it, maybe it didn't happen. And then this past summer, it they weren't doing any, like they weren't meeting anyone because of COVID. So maybe so next one, year, maybe next one summer. day, one day. The, the <laughs> base sits in my my brother's apartment in Los Angeles, waiting <laughs> waiting for the uh, waiting for the the meeting that will happen. But it was good to listen to this album beginning again. And I would love to, man. This is a whole other episode or a whole other conversation. I remembered every word on this album, having not listened to the album in years and years. Just wonder how your memory works like that. Yeah. Where you, was it? Where were all these words in my head that I hadn't even thought about? Did you see this thing with Tony Bennett? You know, because Tony Bennett has Alzheimer's, and uh, they did this whole piece on him in, in 60 Minutes, and he doesn't remember a lot of things. You know, they talk to him. He doesn't... He's disoriented a lot of times. He can't remember things. But as soon as he got on stage, he did this concert that Lady Gaga did with him. Mm-hmm. And this is an amazing thing. You got to dig this up. As soon as he got on stage, he remembered all the tunes. Yeah. And he was Tony Bennett again for like yeah. whatever an hour. It's incredible. You watch this video. You watch the interviews with him, and it's it's sad. You know he doesn't remember much, but the moment he gets on stage, it's he just turns into this other. But he remembers the tunes. He interacts with the audience. He has this whole vibe with the band. So music is powerful in that way. It, it triggers something in the brain that, in a way that nothing else can. Yep. I, and I think you know, people that stutter, I think, like don't stutter when they are singing or, you know, like it's when they have to think about it rather than something buried in the brain like that. And I wonder if it is similar in that way, you know? Yeah, it's, it's amazing. I don't, I don't know that there's any other thing that humans do that can connect people. I know from doing like musicians on call, like when you sing to people in a hospital, there's, you may not be able to connect to that person 
if you just try to have a conversation with them, you sing a song, all of a sudden something else happens. Yeah. Not in every situation, but uh, it's kind of a, there, there's got to be some scientific explanation as far as how our brains work that yeah. explains why that is. But yeah, uh, it's, it's pretty crazy. remarkable. Ten Mootloos? Oh, yeah, yeah. All day. All, right. All day. Thousand Mootloos. Thousands. Thousand Mootloos. Thousands and thousands and thousands of Mootloos. So our listener album came from Joey Dell 11 on Apple Podcast. It is Don Brocco's Amazing Things. Yeah, I really like this record. You know, I, it made me think of that article you sent me. I forget the writer's name. We did the 100 Greatest New Metal Albums. Oh, yeah, yeah. There was a lot of new metal. That is uh, Kurt. Holiday Kirk. Holiday, Holiday Kirk. Kirk. And that was yeah. a great article. I mean, the list was great, but yeah. then the essay he wrote ahead of it. And this album made me think of that because he was talking about how sort of uh, new metal isn't like other genres. There's no like new metal nights at clubs and there's this nostalgia for it. But it feels like at this moment, in the sort of pop uh, culture cycle of things, music cycle, that it's coming back around. Because look at the reemergence of Limp Bizkit. And I think of a band like this, they're, they're definitely pulling from that sound, but expanding upon it, going in other directions with it. So, yeah, this is a... I, I, I thought after the second time I went through it, I was like, oh, there's a lot of new metal in this. Right? Oh, yeah. Especially yeah. in the tones and the guitar and all that kind of stuff. There's a lot of other things. I don't think it's, I don't think you listen to it and go, oh, this is a new metal record, but this right. is somebody, this is a band that certainly liked new metal. You absolutely. Know? Absolutely. So that was interesting to hear or to sort of hear in the tunes. Again, like you said, it goes a lot of different directions, but there's definitely something there that we might see more and more bands. I feel like that sound is coming around again in a strange way. Even just, I, I feel like there's like a new perspective on Fred Durst even. Uh, uh, yeah, you know what's interesting though? Uh, there's a lot of radio stations that could be playing that Limp Bizkit song but aren't. Hmm. And like rock radio stations. I think it would be fun to do, but I'm not a rock radio programmer anymore. I think they're, they're mixed between that stigma of what that was and maybe what people really think about it. Like I think sometimes before before old things make a comeback, there has to be like people have to get past that stigma of right. what it was. Sort of like bell bottoms had a stigma for a while. Like in the nineties or eighties, you're like, ah, bell bottoms or whatever. <laughs> and then something happened and the stigma went away. I, I don't think the stink is off new metal quite yet for for you know bigger culture to get involved in it but I, I agree with you that that it's creeping up there it is you know? it's, it's bubbling creeping. it's bubbling yeah. and you hear in a band like this mm -hmm. Don Bracco so just give a little background on them formed in Bedford England in 2008 the band is Rob Dam Damiani mm. on it yeah Rob Damiani it sounds there you very go. hoagie friendly yep. hoagie what did you say hoagie adjacent it's very hoagie, hoagie adjacent. adjacent yep yeah Rob Rob Damiani on lead vocals uh, Simon Delaney on guitar Matt Donnelly on drums and lead and backing uh, vocals because they have that dual vocal mm -hmm. kind of trade-off element. So those are the three core members that have been there from the beginning. And then since 2012, they've had Tom Doyle on bass guitar and programming. And they also have a, a member who's just part of the band as a, uh, when they tour, Adam Mark, uh, key on keyboards, backing vocals, electronics. Now, earliest versions of this band, 
date back to their high school years at Bedford Modern School. Uh, but they really became serious when they were at Nottingham University. They went through a series of names uh, because I saw that name. I was like, what's the inspiration behind that? Yeah. At one point, they got to the Don Loco, but then they settled in on Don Bracco because Simon Delaney broke his wrist playing soccer, football, you know. That's how they got to that. Such a weird, specific detail. But Yeah, and there's there's certainly <laughs> soccer. It They have a lot of soccer merch, by the way. Soccer, yeah. like adjacent merch, and then there's the song on there. The Manchester it, super fan. Oh, yeah. Yep, yep. <laughs> now, this is a band, we always talk about this. The bands that commit to touring and building their live scene tend to have longevity. This is, they're one of these bands. They started touring England in the fall of 2008, and pretty much they've never stopped. I mean, they've been out there steadily. UK, Europe, some, they've done some here in the States as a sport act, as a headliner. They've really committed to the live show, and that seems to be uh, something that really is a big part of what they do, and a lot of their dedicated fans seem to really appreciate what they do as a live band. Um, starting in 2008, they made a few EPs, but it wasn't until spring of 2012 that they signed with Search and Destroy Records, which is a venture between Sony and Raw Power Management. Debut record drops uh, called Priorities in summer 2012. And then after that, in February, uh, from February to April of 2013, they went on their first UK headline tour. So it was a number of years of building up, releasing EPs, doing some support. Uh, but they eventually got to the po- point within, you know, about four or five years where they were a legit headlining band throughout the UK. Second album drops in 2015. It's in, uh, the album's Automatic. Spring of 2016, they toured as a support for Bring Me the Horizon on their European tour. And then they also toured as support for Five Seconds of Summer on their oh, UK yeah. and European tour. Didn't we? Who's the artist, uh, the drummer from that band? We didn't we uh, Yeah. Uh, uh, skinny, Skinny. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That song, exactly. That was in the uh, year end episode. Yeah. Now, Five Seconds of Summer is an enormous pop punk band. Right. One of the biggest in the world, for sure. Yeah. So they started getting big looks, like they were the support on their UK and European tour 2016. After that sort of album and tour cycle, uh, they signed, in the summer of 2016, they shi- signed with uh, Sharp Tone Records, who did uh, this record as well that we're discussing. But before that one, they put out another record, Technology, that was released in spring of uh, 2018. On that one, they did a lot of touring once again, toured a support act for the band Our Last Night on their North American European tours. And then very fittingly, they also toured as support for Mike Shinoda when he was out promoting hmm. Post Traumatic. So it makes sense because you hear the yeah. Lincoln Park dynamic on some of these songs. Ab- absolutely. Yeah, it's 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 a it's a compelling format, I have to say, where you have the heavier sort of almost rap metal vocal, and then you pay off with this big melodic chorus. It's, it just yeah. it just works, you know. It mm-hmm. just works. So he started writing songs for Amazing Things in early 2020. And then began writing, uh, recording in 2020, towards the end of the year in December. First single, Manchester Super Reds number one fan. But the soccer connection dropped in May of this year, and at that time they announced a record. They followed up with the singles Gum Shield and One True Prince, came out in July and August, and then this record dropped not even two months ago, so it's it's pretty new. Just want to highlight a few of the songs here. First two songs really are social commentary on social media. 
Mm-hmm. You know, that's, uh, and I like that they sort of committed to that right out of the gate. And I like that they get into these social commentaries on their songs. They, they, they go in a lot of different directions, musically, lyrically. But uh, that's one of my favorite parts of this band is that they're, they just like to use the song as a vehicle to put those commentaries out there. So Gum Shield immediately kind of channels that. Sort of early 2000s, new metal, rap metal, a vocal dynamic. They're talking about the heavier rap vocal, the melodic singing style on the hook. Uh, Rob Damiani, I want to read a quote that he, that he put out there about this song. He said, this tune was about the anxiety that comes with posting online and the fear of resulting arguments. We talk about this all, this, all the time. It's, it's this, like your whole life for a lot of people. Yes, yes. You and know? they get right to the heart of it. And I'm going to read a few lines from this tune. It says, guess they'll go and make a new mistake. Hooray. Then you pick yourself a, a new cr- a crusade to while away the days. But I just don't have the energy today. And you just don't have the empathy. I mean, those are, gets right to the essence of what has become so toxic yeah. about our whole social media dialogue and how it's changed us individually from a societal standpoint. You know, uh, I, I think it's interesting because I feel like this is becoming a recurring theme with a lot of bands we discussed, different genres, that more and more artists are writing about the pitfalls of social media because in a way all artists have to exist in that space. So on the one hand, you know, as an artist, you're trying to put your message out there, find connection. A lot of times if you become big enough, especially, (laughs) you get a lot of uh, pushback and you get a lot of people coming at you and you get detractors and people who almost want to express their resentment uh, rather than support and embrace what you do. It's it's a strange tug of war, you know, between Mm -hmm. where we are and where musicians need to be on those platforms. But in some ways, as a creative person, it can be incredibly toxic. To be honest, yeah, you. like, and especially when you're in growth mode and you want to li- acknowledge those people that are with you, right? And that that's that, that's like, like the weird thing about social media. You get to a certain place where I don't think Bill Simmons or Joe Rogan or Rogan has said a million times he doesn't look at that stuff. You can get to a size where you don't have to look at it anymore. Where if you want to acknowledging those people one by one and you know interacting with them you just have too many fans and you don't need to do it you could never interact at the level that you wanted to but when you're in growth mode you have to do you don't have to but man it's a big advantage if you do and yeah. and then you get to a certain spot where okay now you're known but you're still not huge but you have enough people out there to be negative to to you, but you right. still want to like it's a it's a very tough thing, and it's very easy to tell somebody, ah, oh, well, you shouldn't pay attention to that, but you're a no. human, There's and no you way. have to pay attention to it, yeah. and then and especially if it's your career, I, it's just a very very tough spot for a lot of people, you know. And then you know if you're not looking at people who are critical of you, is that necessarily the right thing too? You know, that's the the whole thought bubble, fucking echo chamber shit is not listening to people who are maybe critical of what you do and what you say. I, I don't, I don't <laughs> this was part of our, our pre-pod conversation. I don't know what the way out of this fucking thing is. Like, no, I have no idea what the no, way out we're, is. No, we're entrenched. We're all entrenched. I've done something lately where I've just had to limit my time on these sites because yeah. I think as a creative person, 
it can be very debilitating yeah. if you get past a certain amount of time spent on those sites uh, because they're designed to be addictive. They're do- designed to keep you there and they're designed to fill you with angst. Mm-hmm. And so when you're an artist and you put something out there and someone just attacks you for it mm-hmm. or just trashes what you do, it's devastating. I don't care who you are. I, I don't buy it when people say, oh, I don't care about this stuff. Yes, you do. Because you're an artist, you care. You well, Part of why we're doing this is to <laughs> get feedback, right? Well, it's hard to care and believe the good stuff and not believe the bad stuff. It's hard. Yeah. I, I guess I could... Uh, I guess I could believe that somebody is not affected by that stuff, but that's also a problem to not be affected by it, I think on some level, not a problem, but I I want to take the joy in the positive people and it seems very difficult to take the joy of the positive people and not be affected by the negative people. Yeah, and it's human nature, why do we focus more on the negative? You know, someone could, 50 people could say something wonderful Mm -hmm. about us, but your mind is gonna go to that those mm-hmm. one or two really awful comments. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's just Always. the nature of things. Yep. And Manchester Super Red's number one fan, that's a tune that's uh, also basically, you know, looking at the same concept or perspective, addressing sort of the toxic nature of uh, social media. I want to read another comment from uh, Damiani. He's, on this one, he said he wanted to write something about an aspect of social media culture, of people tearing each other down with much of that destructive negativity coming from the supposed fans of bands and teams, you know? So that gets even more specific yeah. to uh, to what we're talking about, you know? And musically, both of these songs, it's a really strong one-two punch to start the record. I mean, it really pulls you in. I love it. They come at you with the social commentary. You get kind of a snapshot of what they're doing musically. Uh, but it doesn't just rest purely on that format or that formula, sort of the you know, Linkin Park format, I guess, or are they the ones who kind of pioneered that? Would you say maybe there were other bands? Uh... You know, I, I actually, it's interesting that you find so much a, a similarity to new metal. I actually find to a few other bands, none of which, well, you'll, you'll know one of them, but you won't know the other ones. So first of all, they remind me of Faith No More. Faith No More happened before New Metal, but Faith No More definitely had that sort of like wall of guitars that were so tight and not programmed, but there's something like, I, yeah. I don't even know how to describe it, but you know what I'm saying, right? Almost and, industrial sounding. Yes. Industrial. And so the, the similarities I were Faith No More, uh, a band called Vast. I don't think anybody will remember, but if you go back and listen to it, 5.0, which was in, an, which was in the new metal world, but definitely heavier, and I actually, it actually reminded me of early Nine Inch Nails a lot too, which has a lot of that sort of sonic thing and has sort of that. Even Trent Reznor in the early stuff had some sort of rap staccato-ish sort of singing that wasn't rap rock and wasn't sort of new in that metal. direction a little bit. Yeah, yeah but but I. 
I feel a lot of influence from Faith No More, for the bigger bands that I would describe. I feel a lot of influence from Nine Inch, early Nine Inch Nails and Faith No More. You know, you talk about Faith No More. I'm definitely a fan. Uh, years ago, I went and saw them at the yeah. Man Center, I think. Yeah. And the most incredible, the whole show was fantastic, but <laughs> the best part of the show to me was you see all these like metal kind of dudes there and it's that kind of vibe. And they come on and they open with uh, Peaches and Herb. Yeah. Reunited. Yeah. And like the thing of watching these like metal guys like kind of vibe into Peaches and Herb, I was like, oh man, this is incredible. This is well, this is it's just a melded world together that I never thought would. <laughs> well, they have that excellent cover of Easy. Uh, they do a great one. Yeah. Mike Patton is a, a lunatic. M- but, and a musical genius to me. Yeah. Fearless. Yeah. Is not afraid to try anything. He did a record with... Uh, Rozelle, I think. It was just the two of them. And I think they even played shows together. Just him and Rozelle beatboxing. It was I saw him. He had one of his other projects. Was it Mr. Bungle or he has another one opened up for Tool once? And I'm convinced the entire thing was just to annoy the audience. His whole <laughs> set was just to annoy the audience, I think. But he gets off on some of that, you know? Like, like Faith No More is certainly the most pulled together of all of his projects, but he's a... He's a, a lunatic, you know, in a, in a good way. He's a talented guy, you know, genius. This record, uh, you know, it, it goes in a lot of different directions. Uh, there are moments where you get almost this melodic indie rock kind of thing, like swimwear season. There's this beautiful string arrangement that comes in. Orphan's another song. He goes into this kind of falsetto vocal. Mm-hmm. One other song that really stood out to me, just to wrap this one up, a highlight, was uh, the song Uber. song is powerful another powerful social commentary this time speaking out against islamophobia and xenophobia and specifically those who engage in that behavior on ride shares like uber and lyft i just think it's a really great piece of songwriting because it takes something very specific Uh to make a much broader point uh and essentially to speak out against racism and that type of bigotry and at that song i was like okay these guys are they're serious songwriters too it's not just pure, visceral, raw energy. That This album is crafted songwriting-wise, production-wise. Love that he sings with a British accent, and you hear yes. it in Uber. <laughs> Call <laughs> me an like, Uber? Yeah, uh, exactly. Like, is in that. I love that. <laughs> I love when, when, when bands sing in their original accents. The other things that I wanted to, the other songs I wanted to bring up, Endorphins was the one that reminded me of early Nine Inch Nails. I love when when in any song the riff kicks in. I just love when it's like for the first 45 or 50 seconds of the song, it's sort of like this atmospheric, um, you know, uh, digital sort of sound, but the riffs are very metal and I love them. The song Anaheim. Time. 
sort of reminded me of that Daniel John's album that we just did, Talk. I it's thought definitely it was, a standout too. One of the best tunes on the record. You know, it's it's this song in the middle of it that is sort of ballady and sort of R and B ish and sort of electronic, and the vocals are really pretty. And it reminded me of that Daniel John's album, Talk. And then, man, Bruce Willis. Like I love that their <laughs> sort of like sense of humor with a chorus that is. Yippie Kaye motherfucker, and that name of the song <laughs> is just really good. I decided while listening to this, like the second time, and then looking at their merch, I was like, ah, I'm going to be a Don Bracco fan. Like yeah. that, that hit my head. Is like I'm gonna like these guys. They're they're in my my world now. Like I'm gonna like Don Bracco. And this isn't even a band that would inherently be a group I'd be drawn to. But there's something special about these guys. They mm-hmm. they they're versatile. First off, like you said, they almost go into this R and B ballad kind of place. Certain moments they can do everything. Uh, and it's an album you have to listen all the way through. If you yeah. only get a part of the way through, you're not gonna get the full. Like, you got to get to at least Bruce Willis. That's towards the end, you know, to get the full scope. <laughs> so hilariously, I'm like, oh, when are they coming to America? I would love to see them here. I mentioned that, that I. by the way, I pushed the Ricky back five minutes, so we have time to wrap this okay, up. Okay, I was looking so, at the clock. I was like, oh, yeah, man, yeah, yeah. we're down to the wire here. We have an extra five minutes. So okay. <laughs> I was like, oh, when are they coming to America? And I had mentioned that I purchased Gang of Youths tickets for when they're coming to America, and I purchased two dates. I purchased the TLA and Brooklyn Steel, so I could go to both. Not only are they is is uh, is Don Bracco coming to America in uh, 2022? They're coming to America and my area that exact same week, and wow. playing New York and Philadelphia on consecutive nights in between the two Gang of Gang Youth, Youth show. shows. I got to try to get to one of those, too. Do you think there's still... Uh, I'll, fi- I'll figure go. a way in. I'll figure we should it out. go. We should go. We should go. You, you, should, you should come to the Gang of Youth show. We should, it should be It should be a Carl night and a Don Bracco night. I'm, I'm considering taking a week of vacation and just going to all the fucking shows. So like, are, they, are they within the same like week, like Monday through Friday, yes. basically? Okay. Correct. So you'd have there would be three shows. Yeah, you wouldn't be able to. You can't work that week. Are you kidding? No. I could barely could do one show and work, much less doing. You got to put in now. You got to plant the seed now. Yeah. <laughs> I, I I really I I would have to go into work on Monday and put in for the days off and just commit myself to just take like a. I never take, I've, what, four weeks of vacation, five weeks of vacation. I forget what's in my contract. I never take all of it. Maybe I take a, a two weeks of it. I, why not take a couple of days? Look, and this off. is still technically, you know, content oriented because this is like a Carl, <laughs> this is like a Carl field trip, you know? Yeah, I right? guess. I mean, <laughs> on some level, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there you is. go. I mean, so, you know. <laughs> by the way, I, I, two quick things to wrap up. I had mentioned on the last pod trying to get Daniel Johns and Gang of Youths on the pod. We have made contact with Gang of Youths management. We are figuring that out over the next few weeks. Their their promotional push will be next month as their album doesn't come out till February, but it looks like that is maybe going to happen. And, and it might be Daniel, better if we if we can time it so it's closer to the release. So Yeah, well, I think that's what they want to do. Actually. Yeah, we should I do that. That's, oh, that'd that's be awesome. Idea. And then Daniel Johns actually has a new album coming out in April, which I, I pre-purchased. They they sold 500 albums 
to get your name etched in the album vinyl and that <laughs> you got to be one of those names man <laughs> 100 108 dollars later uh, yes absolutely but and i reached out to his i found his publicity and daniel is not doing any interviews between now and then but if that changes we are on the list so okay. who knows okay but, okay but very I, love excited he, for, I love what he wrote about that record oh yeah that apparently no I, I haven't listened to it yet but apparently doing the podcast is what gave him the focus and in a weird, strange way, the courage to say, the hell with it. I'm doing this record, no label. I'm doing my own terms, no singles. That was a really powerful, uh, that that tweet, you saw, or I don't know where it's from, his website. Yeah, it came from me. his Instagram and his Twitter. Yeah, he, it, he's not doing any singles. It's his own imprint on BMG, who actually, BMG, Sony BMG just recently purchased the whole silver chair um, library, which is, the I think, the connection there. And some of the T-shirts are... For the new stuff that you can buy, are frogs in a washing machine, <laughs> and it is Heavy certainly, <laughs> yeah, it is certainly a a but an acknowledgement of. It's interesting for a guy who had run from the silver chair so long to directly acknowledge, you know, to directly acknowledge frog stomp in the in the art, and that it isn't. It's something different, but it's certainly part of his his history. But you know? also saying I'm done with this at the same time. Right. You yeah. know, it's over. Yeah. Washing so. myself of this. Yep. Uh, all right. We'll talk to you next week with our, our best of next week. Send us your stuff. Um, that's all we got. We're done. Stay free, my goose. Stay free, my goose.